Luke chapter 19, we read in verse 28, Now when he had said this, as we read of Christ now going up to Jerusalem, he said he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem, and it came to pass when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, where as you enter you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and, and found it, just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to him, why are you loosing the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of him. And then they brought him to Jesus, and they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. And verse 36, And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. And then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Then verse 39, And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Six or eight months ago, someone sent, sent me a link to a choir piece that puts this event uh, to music. And the person said, you've got to hear this. You've got to listen to this song. I was, I was busy at the time, and uh, it slipped my mind early this summer. I was driving on a long trip somewhere and enjoying the countryside. Uh, I clicked on my Spotify and pulled up my, my playlists. I was about to select my playlists for um, uh, you know, music for non-thinking or um, when you're in your nothing box. And, and I remember this, this piece. And I said, okay, let me pull it up. And I listened. And I, after I heard it, I listened again. And I couldn't help myself. I had to hear it again. With a hundred voices and a powerful orchestra, this event was put into a song. And what a song. It was, it was as if I were there. A bright, sunny springtime day. The music has a, a sense of, of, of energy to it. As the pilgrims are streaming up the road to Jerusalem... You can see it in your mind's eye. And, and as the Messiah approached the Mount of Olives, there was, there was electricity in the air. And, and what took place next was the 31 AD equivalent of a flash mob, except this time, you know, not strategically designed ahead of time, but hundreds of people suddenly crying out in praise to Christ. And the road was, was lined with, with citizens of an oppressive, a, a cruel and brutal Roman government. And they cried out in hope and in joy for the arrival of their king. They laid their cloaks down to pave, you might say, a royal road in front of him. And they waved palm branches as they paid homage to the king. And from the valley beneath Jerusalem, from hundreds of voices, rang this refrain. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. We find, if you flip over to John, we find added to that, Matthew and Mark and John, they all add this, this phrase. John chapter 12, 
And verse 13, when it says how they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, and they cried out, and here we read, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Hosanna, Hosanna, they praised him. In other words, save us, we pray. You know, if you look up in a dictionary, Vine's Dictionary, for example, Vine's Commentary, you'll you read that this originally this, this word was it was alluded to a cry for help, but it, over time it became an utterance not just of a, of a cry for help, but a cry for help with a recognition and expectation of of, of being saved. So that's why. It's recited at the Feast of Tabernacles. It actually, we read in, in Psalm 118 that, that that section of the Psalms is, is rehearsed and recited. And there's a response that goes back and forth with the priests that recites this Hosanna, Hosanna phrase. In fact, the last day of the feast is called the Great Hosanna. And the boughs that were waved to honor the king were called Hosannas. This is what the choral piece that I, I told you about puts into music. Hosanna, Hosanna, give praise to the king. Here we have a picture of a pivotal point in human history. And, and, and just a glimpse, just a glimpse if we can just peer into the window and possibly put ourselves there. But just a glimpse of how moved the people were. That day, so moved, so filled with hope, so filled with joy that their voices erupted into praise. Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Salvation and freedom and peace, our Lord and King has come. What a day, what a sight. But here's what really gets me about this day. Because in the midst of all of this, we go back to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. And let's read that last part because you read in verse, in verse 39. Verse 39. Some of the Pharisees, again we read, called to him from the crowd and they said, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And verse 40, here's what he said. He said, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. In other words, these people are are moved this day. The miracles they've seen, the dead raised to life, the blind healed, the lame lifted up, and the hope of a new day, they cannot hold back. And Christ told them, he said, if the people don't cry out this day, If they don't cry out, if they don't shout, Hosanna, Hosanna, the very rocks from the hills around us would be compelled through the power of God to cry out because of what is about to happen over these next few days. That's the title that I have for the sermon today. Then would the stones cry out. And and I've pondered this this verse. And and as I've thought about it, I, I'm struck by the connection to, to the meaning to this day, today. Certainly it's in the spring holy days, but when we think about what might be considered the two pivotal days in human history, the two pivotal events, 
you'd be hard-pressed to find any two more pivotal events. And as I listened to Mr. Smith describe the challenge that we face this, this last Sabbath of, of putting our mind, our, our biggest hopes, our most extravagant dreams, putting all of that on the other side of the proverbial wall, I, I kept hearing this last Sabbath, I kept hearing this song in my head, that I had heard. I kept hearing that phrase. I tell you that these, if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Because in Romans chapter 8, let, let's turn there. It's the same theme, isn't it, in a sense? Let's, let's read Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, and we read this on the last, on last Sabbath, and thought about the future in relation to today. And, and so we go there again. We see Romans chapter 8 and verse 18. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Verse 19. For the earnest expectation of the creation. In other words, the, 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 the rocks, the earth itself, in a sense. The earth itself, it says, eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. And then verse 22, he said, We know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. It wants to, in a sense... It's, it's almost as if when giving birth, you're, it, it has to come out. It, it has to be given. There's the incredible urge for, for this new baby to come out of the, of the body. That's the description that we have right here. He describes a creation, the rocks and the trees and the lakes and the seas, a, a, a creation that's moved to groan and ache for the day of Christ's return. When finally, finally, at the will of God, Through the power of God, the earth will explode with fury and fire. Let's go to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24. Matthew 24, verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, we read, The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. He says, the stars will fall from the heaven, from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. The sixth seal being described here, leading to that day when Christ returns, the seventh trump and all that accompanies that. We read in Revelation chapter six, Revelation chapter six of the, the earth just breaking up and, and in expectation for the return of Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter six. We read in verse, we'll begin in verse 12. I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth and hair, uh, of hair, and the moon became like blood, verse 13, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it's shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. The way it's described, the earth cannot help but but be moved to, to erupt because of what's happening at that time. 
Verse 15, verse 14, rather verse 15. The kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? This is what's about to happen. So the time will come when this earth itself and the, and the heavens above will erupt to prepare the way for Christ the King. But here we sit. Another year has gone by, another spring, another summer, another week, and before long, another holy day. Another offering, another special music, another sermonette. And in a few minutes, another sermon, gone, another day. And time just continues to go on. And I have to, I have to wonder in this petty pace that creeps from day to day, I have to wonder what, what moves us today? We can read this and it's exciting for a moment and we begin to think, but, but then when that all dies down or our mind goes back to what's facing us, what, what moves us Right now, today, what compels us? What energizes us? What grabs our attention? What consumes our thoughts? Are we moved to anything in anticipation of the day of Christ's return? I I know what moves me. The smell of a good cup of coffee first thing in the morning. That moves me. The smell of fried chicken. Just hot and ready to eat. Well, that moves you, doesn't it? I bet already your stomach's beginning to growl a little bit. For those of you that missed breakfast, sorry. <laughs> but I'm not done. The taste of a poppy seed bagel with cream cheese and locks. If you're from New York, you call it Nova Spread. Those of you New Yorkers know what I'm talking about. That thick. So thick you can hardly get your mouth around it. That moves me. I... <laughs> When I went to New York, I said, you know, after about uh, seven or eight years there, I came, I learned about bagels, and after ten years, I had a bagel. And that's the way, that's the way it worked out. <laughs> because they're so good. And just the thought in the morning of being able to stop by that bagel shop begins to make my mouth water. A poppy seed bagel moves me. <laughs> you notice a theme here, right? Uh, as we go on. It has to do with food. Oh, get, what moves me? Well... When the New England Patriots make their regular trip to the Super Bowl and Tom Brady makes a touchdown pass, man, that moves me. I jump up and I shout, yeah, that moves me. <laughs> Enjoyed that. And you know what moves me also is the proximity of a cell phone. If you're like me, if you have a cell phone anywhere near you, it's always on your mind, isn't it? I just actually was, I'd, I'd seen an article about this and I looked it up and I found that not only is, is there a study that's being done, but we can actually participate in learning how addicted we are to our smartphone. Um, because according to this article, smartphone addiction is no joke. And now there's a scientific way to measure it. A new study from Iowa State University has identified some of the central aspects of nomophobia. You know what nomophobia is? It's no mobile phone phobia. 
okay? And there's a handy 20-question survey that measures iPhone codependence. And uh, scroll down to take the quiz. So let's take the quiz here. So here's, here's, the, here's the quiz. Are you a smartphone junkie? Rate each item on a scale of 1, which completely disagrees, to 7, strongly agree, and tally up your total score to find out. Be honest. Here we go. <clears throat> Number 1, I would feel uncomfortable without constant access to information through my, for- smart- through my smartphone. 1 or 7? Be honest. Number 2, I would be annoyed if I could not look up information on my smartphone when I wanted to do so. Disagree or agree? Number three, if I were unable to get the news on my smartphone, it would make me nervous. Number four, I would be annoyed if I could not use my smartphone and or its capabilities when I wanted to do so. Number five, running out of battery in my smartphone would scare me. Number six, if I were to run out of monthly data limit, I would panic. Um, number, I'll jump down to um, number nine. If I could not check my smartphone for a while, I would feel a desire to check it. I would feel anxious because I could not instantly communicate with my family or friends. I would feel nervous because I would not be able to receive text messages and calls. And it goes on, 20 questions, and you have to rate yourself. And then... The results, how you would score, if you're 20, you disagree with everything, you're not at all nomophobic, you don't have to worry about it. But if you score 101 to 120, then you have a a severe case of nomophobia. You can barely go for 60 seconds without checking your phone. It's the first thing you check in the morning and the last at night, and it dominates most of your activities in between, and it might be time for a serious intervention. Ask yourself how you are with your smartphone. I know, the smartphone, if it's around, it's there, it can be on your mind very easily, can't it? You may have nomophobia. <clears throat> so what affects you? Back to then the question. What, what affects you? What, what, what is in your thoughts? What control, what moves us? What actually gets a, a rise out of us? What compels us during the course of every normal day? In other words, I, I know that Christ is returning home to returning here to change this world, and yet we can be in the, the state of mind where that fact does very little to energize us or move us today compared to my cell phone or a great play on the football field or even a poppy seed bagel. So am I, are you more like the citizens of Judea? who yearn for a savior and a king, who, who are moved to desire a different world? Or are we like the Pharisees who were quite comfortable with the status quo, with the equilibrium that they had built with the Roman government in their society, like the equilibrium we can build in our society with everything around us? So our challenge is established then. How easy it is to get caught up in our pressures, our concerns, but instead we should should be moved, energized, empowered today by the future event that's pictured by the Feast of Trumpets. And this is echoed by by the words of Paul. Let's go to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, and we read in verse 1, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, like we heard about on the Sabbath, thinking about, putting our mind on the beyond, on what's 
in the distance. But but how do we how do we do that? Well, let's continue. He says, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So it's it's framed or it's energy that, that fact that that thinking about what we should set our mind in is is energized by this day. It's energized by the coming of Jesus Christ. And so he says, Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. These things that you could say, couldn't you? They draw our attention. They move us to thought or action. They, they actually dictate or they draw action out of us, don't they? He said, Verse uh, verse 5, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. So we see the same thing echoed over in Romans chapter 8. Let's go back to Romans chapter 8. And now we pick it up here in verse 23. So we read up to verse 22 before. Now let's, let's pick up the, the theme. We read about the, how the creation groans in expectation, not of another day, not of what will happen if we get our stomach filled or, you know, enjoying this or that, but actually of the return of Jesus Christ. Well, you pick up the, 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 uh, the scripture here. He says, verse Beginning verse 23, not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly await, waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, he says, verse 24. But hope that is seen is not hope, for why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weakness, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself makes intervention for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. It's describing a person who has their, their thoughts on the future, on what's to come. He says, verse 27, Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because it makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. So this, everything is, is for our benefit to that end, toward that day, if we will only set our minds on it. He says, For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, those these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. So you see, there's, in, in God's mind, what God's will is, what, what God's, what energizes God is, that is, is, is actually bringing us to this point where we will become his sons. And as you read the next verses from 31 down to 39, you say, not, we, we read the, the, the clear, the clear, clarion uh, sound that Christ is going, not going to let anything interfere with his, des his desire to bring us to that point. We can't, he's not going to change his mind halfway down the, the journey. As long as we are faithful and do our part, he will remain faithful to us. Who's, verse 35, 
Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Remember, that's Christ's love for us. That's the love of Christ. He says, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So this is, this is talking about the power of his, of his determination to strengthen and, and help us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's on his mind. That day is on his mind. Is it on ours? So the emphasis is on thinking of that the change that we read about here and, and being moved, being influenced, and energized today by the reality of that change in the future. Just as the crowds that lined the road leading to Jerusalem were moved to cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna, an expectation of a change, a better day through faith in their king. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse one. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent grown, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Again, there's this, this template, this standard that we're reading about here in Colossians and in Romans and here in Second Corinthians. Paul's words establishing the goal, the template, the, the target. How can we then break this down a bit. We understand that our mind is to be set on the future, on Christ's return. And our mind is to be focused on that. And that should actually influence, energize, move, dictate, prioritize what we do with if we have that thought on our mind. How do we break it down then? Because again, easier said than done. We know the target, but how do we do it? So what I'd like to do then is, is walk through a couple of three Ways, a couple of three ways we can implement that. How to apply that a little bit here. So let's go to Luke chapter 19. And let's pick up right where we left off. Because actually, Christ addresses it, at least the way it's recorded here for us, it's addressed right away. It's addressed the very next in the very next verses. So let's look at some encouragement from the Bible and, and practical ways that we can reach that goal. So we go to Luke chapter 19. And we read up to verse 40. Now, in verse 41, as we continue to read, we, we read this. Now, as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. 
For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. What do we see that, that what Christ enunciated here? I would say, in a simple phrase, we see that he was moved with, he was energized by compassion, right? He wept because of the compassion that he had for Jerusalem. He was moved with compassion. And we find this, this phrase time and time again in the Gospels referring to Christ. Time and again. And the Greek word that is used here, it, it actually has the sense of, be, of being moved from one's bowels. It's not a phrase, that we, not a sense that we use today. But you get the, the point. When you have ache or when your deepest part of you is, is in agony, you understand the, the gist of what it's talking about. From the deepest part of us, there's, there's, a, there's a sense of, 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 of urgency or, or pain or agony. That's, that's the sense. So moved with compassion, yearned with compassion was, the sense was from the deepest part, it had this, this sense of desiring to, to help. And it was a, in other words, it was compassion that wells up from inside, not a momentary twinge of concern. That's the difference. Because we can have that sometimes, can't we? We can have a momentary twinge of concern for somebody else. That's a very different thing than being moved with compassion. And, you know, we see this going back in history. Judges chapter 2. Judges 2. I think it's interesting that, this, that we see this, the same attribute, attribute of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Judges 2. It describes how he dealt with ancient Israel during the time of the judges. Judges 2. And we read here in this chapter, we read sort of an overview. It's like a preview of the book of Judges and what's going to come after. And, and the time and time again, how Israel will, they will actually be, be raised up, they'll be established in the truth, and then maybe they're faithful for a generation or two, and then they fall away from the truth. And they embrace, instead of worshiping God, they begin to embrace falsehood false idols and paganism that began to seep in, similar to, frankly, what we've seen in modern Israel, where we have these elements of, of paganism. But we see in Judges chapter 2 and verse 18, when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning, because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. And it came to pass, when the judge was dead, that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers by following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not seize from their own doings nor from their stubborn way. But we find this phrase, how the Lord was moved to pity, moved, energized, compelled, not slightly interested, but moved. And we see how much he was moved by the intervention that was brought on, working miracles <clears throat> and working with the judges in powerful ways. So God would remove his hand of protection. They would cry out for help, and they would cry, in a sense, Hosanna, save us, in the earlier, earliest sense of the word, and, and he would. Back to the New Testament, back to Mark chapter 6. 
Let's just read a, a couple of these places that rehearse this, this specific of being moved with compassion. And as I, I read these, I think then the question is begged, are we moved with compassion? Think about that in terms of what we're reading here. Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, and begin reading verse 34. And Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude. And we what do we read? It says, he was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. And so he began to teach them many things. Moved with compassion, concern. In a sense, like what we were hearing about in the sermonette. Do we care? Does it grieve us that the world around us it struggles in such confusion where we have with for 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 us for our benefit we have the truth we have the the way we have an understanding we have the hope even in terms of of uh those who have the bible at their fingertips they still are in confusion and have a veil over their eyes so they don't understand like we were hearing about in some of the comments so yeah, we see here, we see here Christ was compassionate. So he says he saw this multitude and he was moved with compassion. We see this repeated just at the next chapter, chapter 8 and verse 1. Chapter 8, or two chapters later in, in verse 1. In those days, the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his, his disciples and said to them, I have compassion on the multitude. Chapter 8 of Mark and now in verse in verse 2, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their own houses, they will faint on the way, for some of them have come from afar. And his disciple answered and said, well, what, what can we do about it? It's not our problem. How can you possibly satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? And he worked a miracle to, because of his concern, because he, was, he had compassion upon them. The next chapter, chapter 9. Chapter 9 and verse 21, 22, we see here, at beginning of verse 14, the whole section talks about this man who had a son, and he had a, this, a, a, this demon. Verse 17, one of the crowd answered and said, Teacher, I brought you my son who has a, a mute spirit, and wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. And he answered him and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. And then they brought him to him, and when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. And so he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And often he has thrown, uh, verse 22, often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Verse 23, and Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. So this is this meant a lot to him. This was important to him. And Christ, again, we see how Christ was was moved. Verse 27, moved to heal him. Verse 25, when Jesus saw the people come running together, came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, Deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. 
And the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly, and came out of him. And he became as one dead, so that many said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. His concern for the man was so much that he took the time, he took the interest to cast out this, this, this demon. We find, as you go through the Gospels, we find again and again these these, these examples of Christ being moved to compassion. A major attribute of Christ's character is his compassion. Now, how much compassion do we have? How, are we moved by compassion? Or are we, every once in a while, slightly interested or concerned? Which is it for us? Could we say that we ache from the innermost parts for each other or for those who are in need? Let's go back to Colossians chapter 3. I, I read the first part of this before. I want to read the, the last part of this chapter. Colossians chapter 3. Because we're given instruction, we're given direction on this very specific topic. Colossians chapter 3. Again, remember, the premise is the first part of the chapter, right? We see verse 1, I'm not going to read the whole thing again, but he says, look, if your mind is on the things above, if your mind is on the fact that we have a future that is looking towards the return of Jesus Christ and being part of his family and the resurrection, with that in mind, then what follows? And then he says, verse uh, let's go to verse 7. But now, but now you yourselves are to put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. So you shouldn't be moved by those things. Those, those come naturally as we interact with people and we get frustrated and we get angry and we get, we're influenced by others. Oh, whatever, those come naturally. That shouldn't be what, what we're moved to do and think. Instead, with this, what we have, this, this vision of the future, Instead, we should be moved, verse 10, he says, have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all in all. And then he says, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another, if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, he says, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts. In other words, the peace that is to come, the peace of God is not on the earth right now. It will rule in the world, in the future. But because that is, that, that's driving us, because that vision, because that, the, the, the understanding of the reality of that day is driving us, then we prioritize what we say and do and how we think because of that. And then we, well, because of that, then we're, that peace can, of, of that future time can be part of our mind and our interactions today. If we will Again, as free moral agents, if we will choose to do so through God's help and through God's God's spirit and God's strength. So Acts chapter 20 is another example. I just want to go briefly. 
here we see that Paul, in a sense, he wasn't just talking the talk, but he was walking the walk, because you can see the compassion and the, uh, the, the love that was evident between him and those with whom he worked. Acts chapter 20. And you read this, this beautiful description of the relationship that he had with the elders here. Verse 24. Actually, I want to go for, up, jump up to verse um, uh, chapter 19. Actually, I'm sorry. I'm, I just flipped the wrong page here. Uh, yes, verse 17. Here we go. Chapter 20, verse 17. From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia and what manner I have always lived among you. And he talked about his dedication to them. He reminded them, Look, I've, I've, I've loved you. I've given you everything openly. And he says, Now I don't know what's going to happen. Verse 24. None of these things, though, move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry with which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching, the kingdom of God will see my face no more. And therefore I testify you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. And he says, I know that there will come savage wolves in among you, not sparing the flock, and others will rise up speaking perverse things. But he says, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. What's he doing? He's again pointing them towards the future and what's coming. He's saying, and he's saying as, as part of that today then, he's saying, he's saying, verse 35, I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And look at the reaction on their part. He said, then they all wept freely, and they fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more. And they accompanied him to the ship. You can see that he, he lived the compassion and the care and the concern that he spoke about. So how does this all apply to the Feast of Trumpets? I hope it makes it clear that what we're picturing today, it should have an impact on our life now. It shouldn't be so much the future that it's divorced from our reality today, and we just go about our business day in, day out. And that's what we read in Paul's words, is to remember that in terms of today. Now, I'm going to talk about a second area. The first area then is, in terms of application, is that we should be moved with compassion today. Let's go to Job 38. Job 38. In Job 38, we read something about the, this, this conversation that goes back and forth with, 
different of his friends and Job. And then here God steps in and says, okay, let's get things straight. So I was thinking about this. I was actually uh, reminded a few weeks ago, or what, what actually inspired this, this thought in terms of this, this uh, area in which we should be moved was um, a few weeks ago at one of our assemblies, Mr. Ames talked about how years ago, uh, back in Ambassador College, he went to, to River Glen, uh, that was the sort of mountainous, I don't know, cabin lodge area that students could go to with their class and they'd have, have activities and all that. And he talked about here, he was a young man and he went up there and he went out in the evening and he looked up in the, uh, in the heavens and he looked up and he saw the stars and, and, and the way he described it to the students, I can't describe it exactly the same way, but he said it just struck him as he was looking up and seeing this host of, of the heavens with all the stars, it just struck him of how awesome God was, and he fell on his face, and he just prayed to God. Only Mr. Ames could describe it that way. You know, he just fell on his face, and he said, God, wow, how great you are. And he described that to the students the other night. And I, I, as I was thinking about that, I thought, that's what, that's what Job went through, isn't it? Job was, was forced to face reality. As God says here in verse 4 of 30, chapter 38, He says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. This chapter, it it, it highlights the creation that God has, has, has provided for us. And then you come over a couple chapters later in the story, and you read Job's response. Then Job, chapter 42, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything, and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You asked, Who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand. He was now in awe of God. He was not before, the way it sounds. He thought of himself and his acts and his righteousness. Now, I think that can relate to us because we can be doing all the right things. We can be attending Sabbath services. We can go to the feast. We can go to the Feast of Trumpets. We can just do all the right things. And yet, do we have an awe of God? Do we have a a fear of God, a respect of God, and driven by, moved by what we know is ahead of us in the future? Job was awestruck, as he says. He said, listen, please, or rather, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. He says, you said, I will question you, and you shall answer me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I put myself in the proper perspective. Might be the way we would say it in a modern way. I see what you are, and I see what I am, and I realize the difference. And I am in awe of, of you. You know, it's healthy to be awed by God's creation from time to time. And it's healthy to be especially moved by the thought that the God who made all that we see is actually there in the heavens above and will be coming to this earth to rebuild and to heal our land that we have so mismanaged and blighted. You know, 55% of the Earth's population lives in urban areas today. And in the next 
30 years, that's actually supposed, that is supposed to go up even to 65 to 70%. And the majority of the urban areas of this world, if you have not seen them, are not parks and broad uh, uh, roads lined with beautiful trees. If you have not seen the cities of this world that are really the, 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 the armpit, the hell holes of, of civilization, then you have no idea what I'm talking about. But they exist for most of the people that live in the cities in this world. If you have not seen Dhaka, Bangladesh, or, or Calcutta, now the name has changed. But there are places on this earth that are absolutely... What, what we experience today, it doesn't even, I don't think it, it in, in this, this city that we live here, it doesn't even, even give us the ability, I think, to fathom what it's like to see, as far as the eye can see, only ten roof covers, uh, covers and, and sewer-lined streets. That is the way it is for much of the urban world today. So we need God to return and to beautify this earth. And that will even be more so after the years that we will face ahead. So Job was awestruck. Are we moved with awe as we see the beauty of God's creation that we have a chance to experience today? Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. We read of the men and women of faith. Just want to jump down here to read about Noah. He said, verse 6, Without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And look what he says in verse 7. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear. I think it's a great phrase for this sermon. He moved. In other words, action was, was, was driven. There was energy that took, that was, that actually went out from them to do something. What was, that was driven by fear, by knowing what was to come, by an event that he was told was going to happen by, by God. Moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Are we moved by fear? Good fear, godly fear. And you think about how far away was the flood to when Noah was told to move with godly fear and build an ark. Think about how long that was. Decades, some will say 100 years, some say, no, you can't be 100 years because his son was actually, was, they were born at 100 years before uh, the flood, and so they were married when he was told. So, but we're talking, there's a, you, can, you can argue around, but you're talking about certainly 40 or 50 years likely. It's a period of time of some decades between when he was told to build the ark and when the flood came. How does that compare to us today? How many years do we have before not a flood that will destroy the earth, but the return of Jesus Christ? He was moved with godly fear because of what he was told was going to happen. Do we go about our business as usual to a large degree? Or could it be said that we're moved with godly fear because of the, you might say, the 
global catastrophe that's going to come upon our earth as Christ returns. Do we have the same sense of urgency that he does? And compare our our time. Let's go to Nehemiah chapter 8. I'm actually in in this sort of uh, uh, application point. I'm, I'm tying together awe, fear, and respect. We should be moved with awe, fear, and respect for God because of what we know is coming and what we this day pictures. Nehemiah chapter 8, I think to me, is, is just a classic example of the respect that we should have. Nehemiah chapter 8. What a credit to these, these people. At this same time, when the verse, uh, last part of verse 73 of, of chapter 7, we read, When the seventh month came, the children of Israel were in their cities. Now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Today. And he says, verse 3, Then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday before the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. They were moved by respect for God and for his law, that they were attentive, they listened. In fact, we see here, verse uh, verse 5, when Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. What a, what a, a, a testimony to the people of that day and how keyed in they were to trying to obey God. Now, we understand they'd come back from captivity. So it was pretty fresh on their minds. But yet it still stands as a, really a testimony to their deference to the law of God and the teaching of the law of God. And we read about then the reading of the law of God as, as the, the account goes on. They were moved to show respect. How precious do we count the words that are provided, that are preserved for us in this, in this Bible that we have on our laps? F.F. Bruce, in his book about the canon of the Bible, he, he says this, or he writes this. Let me read you something here from his book. He says, The Bible, at first sight, appears to be a collection of literature, mainly Jewish. If we inquire into the circumstances under which the various biblical documents were written, we find that they were written at intervals over a space of nearly 1,400 years. The writers wrote in various lands, from Italy in the west to Mesopotamia and possibly Persia in the east. The writers themselves were a heterogeneous number of people, not only separated from each other by hundreds of years and hundreds of miles, but belonging to the most diverse walks of life. In their ranks we have kings, herdsmen, soldiers, legislators, fishermen, statesmen, courtiers, priests, and prophets, a tent-making rabbi and a Gentile physician, not to speak of others of whom we know nothing apart from the writings they have left us. The writings themselves belong to a great variety of literary types. They include history, law, civil, criminal, ethical, ritual, sanitary law, religious poetry, didactic treatises, lyric poetry, 
parable, an allegory, biography, personal correspondence, personal memoirs, and diaries, in addition to the distinctly biblical types of prophecy and apocalyptic. For all of that, the Bible is not simply an anthology. There is a unity which binds the whole together. An anthology, anthology is compiled by an anthologist, but no anthologist compiled the Bible. He says, across its breadth of time and background and language and geography, there's this synchronized common thread from start to finish. And, and we are able to hold this in our laps. He says this, he says, It seems strange that the text of Shakespeare, which has been in existence less than 208 years, should be far more uncertain and corrupt than that of the New Testament, now over over 18 centuries of old, during which 15 of which it existed only in manuscript. So he talks not only about the breadth of of those who contributed to this document, but he, he talks about the preservation of it and how miraculous the preservation is. Continuing, he says, with perhaps a dozen or 20 exceptions, the text of every verse in the New Testament may be said to be so far settled by general consent of scholars that any dispute as to its readings must relate rather to the interpretation of the words than to any doubts respecting the words themselves. But in every one of Shakespeare's 37 plays, there are probably a hundred readings still in dispute, a large portion of which materially affects the meaning of the passages in which they occur. Compared to Shakespeare, the Bible and the text of the Bible has been preserved with a miraculous accuracy over these years. So, and more, you can read more about this in, in, in Dr. Winnell's uh, booklet, The Bible Factor Fiction. We're going through this in our, in our class in, uh, in doctrines right now. The point is, we see examples in the scriptures of, of fear, of awe, of, of deference. And again, we see a pointing towards the future and what is, what is, what is, what is before us on down into, on the horizon. Let's go to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. I'm rather John chapter 18. John chapter 18. Let's look at the third area of application. John chapter 18. John chapter 18. Now remember the context here. This is after Christ had been with his disciples. He, he had shown them the vision of what lies in the future. Actually, the, the transfiguration, even having a vision of, of the future, very, very, very real, at least to, to Peter and John here. And we, so this is the context here. Now we see his, his arrest and betrayal here in the garden. And I just want to go to, let's see here, verse... Um, Let's go to verse 3. Then Judas, having received the detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. 
And then he asked them again, Whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way. This was a a detachment of soldiers. They had weapons. They were prepared to do what it took to take Jesus in. And we see verse verse 9, that the saying might be fulfilled, which he spoke of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. In verse 10, he says, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Many times, I think we focus on then Christ saying, basically, put your sword back in the, sh- in the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? And we say, okay. He said, Peter, come on, knock it off. But, but I don't know that that gives actually credence to what was happening here. Because think about Peter. And the point I'm making is this, is that if we understand the future, we should also be energized or we should be moved with loyalty. Moved with loyalty. Here you see Peter actually putting his life on the line by taking this action. Yes, it was the wrong thing to do according to as Christ described. But he was willing to step in and go towards danger and put himself between Christ and this contingent of soldiers. Do you think that he did not recognize that he would probably die in an altercation with the soldiers? Does it make any sense that he had any confusion whatsoever? Well, he knew these these, these Roman soldiers, and he knew the, 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 the nature of them as soldiers. And yet he stepped up, and he, in his own... Yes, in his own futility, perhaps, but the the loyalty that he showed Christ to me is is very admirable. Do we do we have the same sense of loyalty towards each other as brethren, recognizing we're going to be with each other for all eternity in the future? Do we have that same loyalty towards Christ? Again, conditioned by and premised by and and driven by the future that we that we look forward to, that we know about. In this, a situation like this, again, in our in exactly in Peter's shoes, what would we do? What would you do? What would I do? You know, last April we were about to leave for UNC Charlotte with a group of students for uh, a concert. This was back April 29th, 30th, I'd, uh, right about there, May, May 1st, right in that time. We had a, a dinner at the uh, headquarters office there. And while we were having dinner, literally just as we were about to leave, we got a phone call that said, hey, look, don't go over to the campus because there's been a shooting over there. So they were locking the campus down. And so we said, okay, we're not going to be able to do that. What's going on? And we, we saw in the news that there had been a shooting and a couple of people had been killed. But as the story came out, you may remember, that there was a, a young man, his name was Riley Howell, Riley Howell, who was in the, in that, right in the middle of it when the shooter um, stepped up and began to shoot people. And this one young man, 21-year-old man, he did what I, I think a lot of us, as men particularly, would want to do. That he actually went towards the gunman, he, he knocked him down, and held him so others could be able to take the gun away from him. He died, he was killed, as was one other person. When I read about this, I, I can't help but feel that's, that's the type of loyalty that I want to have for 
my brethren, for Jesus Christ, and the dedication certainly to people at large. But I think I, this is a young man in the world, but this is real. He died by running towards danger. That's why every every September when you know when it comes time when I think of of what happened in New York City um, when uh, when all the, the terrorist attack happened. My wife was actually up. We were in Louisiana at the time. My wife was up in New York and uh, was supposed to leave. I think it was the next day. And so that was the first thing that I was thinking, what's going on here? But maybe because also at the time I was volunteering with a local fire department and, and helping out. Um, and they actually considered going up afterwards and helping out. So I, so I had a maybe a particular, I don't know, feeling of, of of respect and admiration for those firefighters who ran towards the building they ran towards danger they out of out of dedication to their job and the people they served they went into the building knowing full well they could die as a result and many did so we we have these of these things like this and we see this and, and we admire the dedication and the loyalty and the the bravery this is what peter did he put himself in harm's way defending Jesus Christ. So what about us? It seems pretty, you know, pretty dramatic compared to our normal days. I understand that. But do we defend each other? Do we, do we when someone else is being talked about negatively, do we defend them or do we pile on? Or do we say, yeah, I've always thought that too. They're an idiot. Never told them so. I always smile at them. But yeah, really, you're right. They're an idiot. Yeah. What What do we do? Do we ever defend each other? Do we protect each other? What's our immediate rea- reaction when someone else is perhaps given um, given credit or, or given approbation or given a given a compliment? Do we automatically want to just tear down just a little bit? Yeah, they may have looked good there, but I know what they're really like, you know. You don't really see them, I guess especially, you know, our our wives. They see us at our our, our weakest. They see our shaving cuts or whatever and more. And yet we trust them to to be loyal to us and and support us and, and likewise within marriage. But do we do that with each other? Do we have that same loyalty towards one another, brethren? Or are we somewhat little islands that go about our business without much of a sense of obligation towards each other in terms of loyalty? Let's, if you look at a couple examples, I, no, I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to go on, but I'm just going to, I'll, I'll cite a couple examples here that you might just add to your notes. Because I, I think if you look at the example of, of Genesis and Genesis chapter 18 with Abraham, and you see how he he actually pleaded with God for not not destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. And you think, wow, what was it? Was he nuts? Well, you look back and you realize that he had some acquaintances there. He actually had uh, uh, had involvement with these cities. And I, I think that you, you, we, we look at it and say, why in the world did he do that? But he seemed compelled to have a certain loyalty or concern for these people that he, enough so that he was willing to, in a sense, he was willing to negotiate with God. So you see that characteristic. Then we look at, at the Exodus and we see, we see Moses and how Moses actually sort of negotiated with God on behalf of the Israelites. And you see, why, why didn't he just say, yeah, God, kill them all. Let's make a new nation for me. Probably better, you know, it'd be like me anyway, so things would probably be better. Why, why did he not 
just go along with it. But he had this, this loyalty toward his brethren, the, 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 the people of Israel. I think God respected that, and I think God appreciated that, that sense of loyalty. You look at the example of Joshua. In Joshua chapter 5, you read how when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted his eyes and looked. Behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn, facing him. And Joshua went to him. You know, he went to him and said, What are you doing? Are you for us or are you for our adversaries? And then it was the word. God, Jesus Christ said, You don't know who you're talking to. He said, I am the commander, and although Joshua was on autopilot into defense mode and protecting his people, he then recognized this was, this was the one whom he served, and everything changed. But you see his auto-response. Is our auto-response that of loyalty towards each other? And is it conditioned then by recognizing the future. And that's the example. That's what Christ has, was loyal to us, so loyal that he gave us, he laid down his life for us. He gave his very life. That's the model of loyalty towards us. He's the one who's returning. That's the characteristic that, that he embodies. Do we reflect that when we think of, of him, what he has in store for us? Loyalty to flawed people. Loyalty to those that we may not always no, or we may not always uh, necessarily click with loyalty to our brethren. That I think certainly it's helpful to to send cards and and visit and all those things that we can do. I think even at the feast, I would I would encourage you, brethren. I would encourage you to think when you go to the feast, especially in international areas and in areas where they oftentimes are not able to travel. Maybe I'm especially sensitive about this because I, I served in the, the Caribbean for a number of years and would go to places and, and spend time in places where the, the members in that area, the brethren in that area for the feast, they were with the same people they were with all year long. They, they, uh, you know, they couldn't go anywhere in Guyana or Trinidad, um, Jamaica many times, uh, parts throughout the Caribbean, and there are other places in the world, but I'm just most familiar. They can't go anywhere. And, and we look at the feast in a sense almost like a travel opportunity and we pick and where, we, where can we go? They can't do that. So when we can go to those places and bring them joy, bring them uh, fellowship for the feast, it, it's really a blessing. But we don't always think of it that way. We think more often, if we're not careful, what we can get out of the feast and you know what we can enjoy. And what, where we can go and what we can do. And we don't necessarily think about our brethren that, that are not in that same, that same situation. Give us some thought. And if you're traveling to some of those places here, even this year, make sure you take the time to, to spend with them, to bring them a, a good feast, a joyous feast. Because there are a lot of our brethren in international areas who are in that category. And that's a way that we can show our loyalty to them, that we care. Yeah, it takes a little bit more effort on our part than maybe just signing a card, which is a good thing, but there's not a whole lot of, of commitment involved with, 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 with signing a card. I'm not saying we shouldn't, but understand by comparison what I'm, what I'm talking about. Last section I'd like to talk about just for a couple of minutes, then, is, is being moved by the future to learn and to teach. Let's go to... 
Um, let's see here. Let's go to Acts chapter 11. In Acts chapter 2, we read about how those who were called were then convicted. And they were, they were moved to say, what should we do? And then the disciples answered and said, then be baptized. And, and the church began. They were, there was a, a move to a desire, an urge to learn, to understand, to become convicted. And to become dedicated to, to the body and to the, the ways of God. We see here in Acts chapter 17. A familiar section, but I think it categorizes these people as well. Acts chapter 17 and verse 10. We see the, the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica. And that they received the word with readiness... And they searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. They had a, a, they were moved to learn. They were moved to search out. And that's a characteristic that, again, should be driven. We should continue to want to learn, to search out, and also to teach. You know, if you, if you look in 2 Peter chapter 1, let's look there quickly, I guess. We'll, we'll go ahead and go there. 2 Peter chapter 1, you see that, the phrase of being moved is even used here in Second Peter chapter one and verse twenty-one, where we read this. Oh, let's go back to verse nineteen. And so we have Second Peter chapter one verse nineteen. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed, as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. They were inspired. They were energized. To speak, to teach, and to prophesy. So are we energized to learn and to teach as we have the opportunity? Are we energized by God to do that, especially when we consider the future, when we consider the meaning of this day? I love mountains and sunsets. Now, when I, when I look at mountains, it's like something inside me just, it just settles. Um, it's like seeing the beauty with, with my own eyes out of these organs that we have, and you see beautiful mountains. It just settles me. I don't know if you know what I, what I mean. But I also love sunsets. Uh, I love to sit by a fire watching the sun set over the, over the horizon. It's like, again, like a peace settles over me. And I, I know that about myself, and I crave those moments. Mr. Smith mentioned basketball on the Sabbath. <clears throat> a number of guys uh, get together and play pickup basketball in the parking lot there at headquarters um, during some weeks. And um, there was a time when I could not walk past a basketball game without wanting to get my hands on the ball. Now when I walk past them playing, I remember how sore I was after the last time I played with them. And then I think of sitting by my fire pit and watching the sunset, and it's no contest. But something else that really moves me is, is, is music. Last spring, my wife and I went to the Charlotte Symphony Orchestra, and we went to watch them perform, listen to perform uh, Gustav Holst's piece, The Planets. It's one of my, my favorite pieces of music. Um, it's like the music just, it just lifts you. And then comes this, this short section that has what I think is the most beautiful and most powerful themes ever written. And I can hardly even think about it without getting goosebumps. Because 
it's just, it just overcomes you, overwhelms you, and you can feel the emotions rise inside of you. And I can only imagine what it must have been like when we read of in the Old Testament in Second Chronicles about the priests playing with 120 trumpets. You can only imagine the sound as the people listen as Solomon offered on the temple. This, it says an innumerable number of sacrifices. They could not be counted. What a dramatic day that was as the music played and the people praised God for the event. How moving this must have been. You know, there are things in life that, that move us. Some good, some not so good. Music, sports, beauty, also jealousy, lust, and hatred. And, and our challenge as Christians is, is to step back and with the help of God's spirit of wisdom and understanding to consider ourselves carefully. We, we have the knowledge of a time on the horizon that will change everything. With the fulfillment of this day, everything that we know, everything with which we're familiar will be, will be gone. You know, the people that lined that road and, and threw their cloaks on the ground and shouted, Hosanna! Hosanna! They were not doing so out of obligation or guilt or just because they'd grown up doing it. No, this wasn't ho-hum in a rut, one more Sabbath, one more holy day routine. They were moved with emotion and expectation of their prophesied king. Are we moved, are we energized by the expectation of our prophesied king? 1 Corinthians 15 talks about the day when God will move, in a sense, heaven and earth to, to resurrect us, to change us. He is, will be energized. He's, he's excited to change us into something else. That's what that chapter talks about, from the earthly to the spiritual. He'll resurrect us, and God is filled with anticipation for this day for us. It's on his mind. You might say he's energized, fired up, excited on our behalf. Are we? Hosanna, 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 our King. Is this what we cry out as we think of this day? And yes, yes, if we do not... We know what, what Christ would say, don't we? I tell you that if these should keep silent, that the stones would immediately cry out.